Welcome to Full Prefrontal, the show that exposes the mysteries of executive functions. This show is a collection of conversations about the role of the prefrontal cortex, which impacts your focus, planning, problem solving, emotional balance, and independence. These conversations will introduce mental tools that will empower you to shift your mindset for a successful life. And now, here's your host, Sucheta Kamath. Welcome back to Full Prefrontal, where we are exposing the mysteries of executive function. As always, I'm here with our host, Sucheta Kamath. Good morning, my friend. Good to be with you. We have been trying to get this uh, gentleman on our show for several months. I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Yes, everybody's in for a treat. And brace yourselves, people, because if you claim you know yourselves, you probably don't. So I wanted to start off with this amazing thing that happened to me recently you know, every Monday I have a Pilates session with a friend of mine, Catherine, and she and I kind of hang out together with our instructor, who is just fabulous. But uh, that particular Monday, it took us by surprise because our instructor told us that she has opened a brand new office in uh, Roswell area, which is just a few miles uh, north, and that she opened it last week. And we both laying flat on our backs. We were a little surprised and taken aback. And the reason was because this instructor is a kind of a storyteller. You know, she freely shares many parts of her life with us and we spend substantial amount of time with her. And so it was surprising to us that she never mentioned about her move or the new office. So she was puzzled by our own response. And she said, uh, and she said <laughs> with a great surprise, and she said, haven't you noticed the missing Coraline equipment? And we both looked at each other, Catherine and I said, Coraline equipment? And we turned uh, to our right. And yes, there are three giant machines that's called Coraline equipment. Those who know Pilates know that. And two of them are were missing. <laughs> but of course, we did not notice it because we're not looking for it. And so this is, uh, got me thinking about our speaker today because he says that we believe that we should be noticing everything and paying attention to much of the world around us as it is exactly presents itself. But that is an illusion and it's an illusion of attention. And then he talks about a lot of other illusions that we suffer from. So I'm very keen because many people that I work with, almost all people that I work with in my practice are those um, I know who are trying to educate our children are unable to pay attention. So what does really paying attention means and what is this illusion of attention then? How does that interfere with one's ability to learn and manage their learning because it requires a decent amount of awareness of and redirection when you are not paying attention. So our guest today is Dr. Christopher Shabriz. He's a professor at uh, Geisinger, an integrated healthcare system in Pennsylvania. His research focuses on attention, intelligence, uh, individual, collective, and social intelligence, behavior, genetics, and decision-making. What a fantastic cognitive neuroscientist to have here. In 2019, he was selected as a fellow of the Association of Psychological Science. Chris is a co-author of the New York Times bestseller, The Invisible Gorilla, uh, How Our Intuitions Deceive Us, which has been published in 20 languages to date. I wonder if one of those languages are, is in an Indian language. I'll ask him about that. He shared a, the 2004 Ig Nobel Prize in psychology, which is awarded for achievements uh, that first make people laugh and then make them think. I love this category. And to me, he's already a Nobel Prize winner. And uh, Chris has spoken uh, to audiences at major conferences, businesses, including PopTech, Google, uh, Credit Suzy, uh, Suze, I guess, 
and many, many places. He is a chess master, and he makes many references to that in this book, which is phenomenal, and a poker amateur and a game enthusiast, which I am a game enthusiast, uh, and I'm poker and I don't meet anywhere. So it requires too much working memory, which I don't have. And he also contributes uh, to the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Slate and other publications. So it's a great pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. And thanks for that generous introduction. Yes. So this podcast is about executive function. We talk a lot about self-regulation through self-awareness, how best to become intentional while focusing, assessing goals and outcomes, and above all, adapt flexibly to all circumstances and particularly regular, uh, kind of detect irregularities in the environment and in oneself. So before I start asking you questions about your own research, do you mind sharing with us regarding your own observations about your personal executive function skills? How were you as a learner and thinker at a young age? Wow, at a young age, I don't remember back that far, but certainly it feels at the age I'm at now that there are more opportunities and uh, causes for distraction around us at all times, phones, you know, all the browser tabs we have open and the apps we have open on our computers at the same time, uh, yes. all the things that are competing for our attention. And I'm not going to pretend that I have any solutions, that I've discovered any personal solutions for that problem. I think it's, it's a problem of the environment we live in, which has many benefits for us, but also, you know, has some, poses some challenges. Maybe I should be listening to your your show more regularly to get some tips on improving my own executive function because I, I don't think I am as good as I used to be at sort of stopping <laughs> and, and you know working on one thing for you know five or six hours or something like that. But but that's also partly because just at the age and the, the point in my career where I am, I rarely have that long a block of time when I don't have something else scheduled or a series of meetings to go to or have to drive somewhere or whatever. So you know sometimes people make the fallacious argument that because they are having more trouble concentrating or focusing or they find themselves more easily distracted, that must be the fault of technology or social media or whatever. I think often it's the fault of being older than we used to be. And, you know, as we know, <laughs> executive function sort of tends to decline with age just from sort of a cognitive neuroscience point of view. And so I'm, I'm really hesitant to sort of generalize from my own experience, but I'm not going to be here and tell you that I'm a champion of, of being able to focus for a long periods of time. One one interesting thing you mentioned in, in going over my biography was the chess part. And I have been trying to play more chess and get more into chess recently. And one reason I like that experience is that when you play a serious game of chess, you actually sort of, you have to focus on one thing for an hour, two hours, you know, even, even five or six hours if it's a really, you know, long yes. game. And that's somewhat of a unique experience in, in the world today of, of being able to focus just on one thing and having a, a motivation to not be distracted. That is, um, it's not just the motivation to sort of for your own productivity, but you have something which is claiming your continuous attention for a long period of time. And that's a, it's a more different experience nowadays than it, than it used to be. And I, I kind of enjoy it. It's so interesting that you mentioned that. So uh, about age, you know, I think with age, what really improves the, what areas of executive function improve is your uh, notion of goals, your personal goals. You have much cl more clarity regarding purpose and goal. And there's a, kind of path to future self is much more more clear there's it's in focus and as you mentioned the speed of processing and a highly susceptibility to distraction really really is the Achilles heel for older people but you know some of the practices that we read in your bio and you describe is really you already have trained your mind to hold information 
and work through a very problematic scenario for, I mean, the fact that you mentioned hours, nobody, <laughs> nobody's working right now that long on anything unless their work requires it. So you've done a lot of work for your executive function already. <laughs> so I have one more question regarding your practice. So you investigate the idea of everyday illusions. What have you learned about yourself in that respect before we jump into the actual topic of all types of illusions? One thing that we, the kind of illusions that we're talking about, just I guess as a little bit of a preview, are not uh, visual illusions um, or that kind of thing. They are sort of mistaken beliefs or mistaken intuitive concepts that we tend to have about our own cognitive powers and how our own minds work. And I think no one is immune to those. Those are just features of the human cognitive architecture and, you know, the kind of people we are. Um, so I'm not immune to those at all. But I do find that the more that I talk and write about this, sort of starting with when we started to work on the book, which was, was quite a while ago, over 10 years ago now, and on, you know, thinking about these kinds of issues since then, I do think I'm getting better and better at recognizing in myself when I might be falling prey to one of these illusions, which we're going to go into in, in more depth. So I think it is possible to sort of learn to recognize these things in, in your own behavior and in the behavior of other people, and then take some intentional actions to reduce their, their likelihood of affecting you or to basically come to not rely on your own cognitive powers as much as, as, as you might otherwise. It's sort of ironic that the goal of understanding the mind should be to trust yourself less, but that is one of the I think that is one of the major <laughs> lessons, uh, you know, is, is to trust your perceptions and your memories and, and your, your beliefs less than you do. That was the most profound insight. And thank God you wrote this book 10 years ago and I read it because, you know, coming from a, a cognitive retraining point of view, I was so blinded by this idea that you can uh, and, and so you must and let's teach it kind of thing. And what you really, really, uh, you, you, your, your work, your, your writing really taught us is this idea that don't trust that you, yeah, it's best is to work on your self-awareness and awareness that, that you will never have full access to your inner workings. So that's the really profound. So let's jump on to the, the real meat of this topic. So when I read your work, one of the things that was really caught me by surprise is, and got me concerned was that my mind, you know, the mind that's out of our hand, in fact, you know, how my perceptions can be deceived, how susceptible my mind is to open my own misguided uh, thoughts and beliefs and how easily I can, it can mislead or uh, lead me on a path that will not yield me success. So for starters, can you explain to our listeners what the, is human perception and what do, do we mean when we talk about the mind? Well, those, too broad -minded? Are, those, those are two <laughs> questions. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, in, when we teach introductory psychology, we usually talk about the distinction between sensation and perception. And, you know, sensation is just the processing of sensory inputs that reach the body. So when, when light rays, you know, strike the retina in the back of our eyes and they cause cells in the retina to fire and send signals back to the rest of the brain and, and so on, there's sort of a process of sensation, which is just sort of, you know, receiving some kind of input from the environment. And then perception could be thought of as the process of making sense of that and translating that into some kind of information about what is actually out there. And traditional visual illusions, you know, happen when the perception we have is not the same as what's actually out there, because something going on in the brain has, and because of the clever designer of the visual illusion has sort of created a, a stimulus or a picture, which causes us to interpret it 
incorrectly. And it's rare to have, you know, you, you, you often, you know, want to interpret a, a human being as a building or a dog <laughs> as a tree or something like that. But even maybe in clever situations, you could. But more you see the shapes and colors and motions of things as different than they are. And you can get to very striking visual illusions like that. So that's sort of perception. Now, what's the mind? I mean, again, another, you know, another deep <laughs> question, the, the standard answer in cognitive neuroscience, or at least the one that I kind of grew up with that, that came from my graduate mentor, um, Steve Kosselin at Harvard, was the mind is what the brain does. So the brain is a physical organ, and the mind can be thought of as sort of the, the collection of phenomena that are created by the operation of, of the brain. And so perception is sort of, you know, perception is in a sense a, a mental function then. And I, I would add one other concept to these two, which is attention. So yeah. start with sensation, and then you, you get to perception. Attention is the selective aspect of perception. So you could imagine sort of perceiving that is interpreting and understanding like all the sensory stimuli that are coming to you at all times. But what attention does is it, it sort of selects out or amplifies some subset of that and, you know, uh, brings that to greater awareness or enables you to sort of do deeper processing with it. So there are sort of things you can do when you pay attention that you simply can't do when you're not paying attention. And that's in a way sort of one of the mismatches that's one of the mismatches we have when we think about how our minds work is we don't realize how much difference there is between what we can do with a stimulus or a task when we pay attention and how little we can do when we don't pay attention, right? So then when people multitask and when my students back when I was a college professor, when my students would watch Netflix and post on Instagram and say they're studying at the same time, the thing is they sort of don't realize how by not paying continuous attention to the studying, they're doing it much worse than they would be if they really did. The, the, the awareness of sort of the value of attention is lower than it should be. Well, thank you so much for doing that. I think uh, spoken like a true cognitive neuroscientist, because this kind of lays the structure of what we are about to talk about, which are these everyday uh, illusions. So in your book, you, you're not just focusing on illusions of attention, but you have six everyday illusions, which is illusion of attention, illusion of memory, illusion of confidence, illusion of knowledge, illusion of cause, and illusion of potential. So for starters, these are distorted beliefs we hold close to our heart about how the mind works, as you mentioned, and they, of course, seep into our consciousness, and sometimes they might turn into <laughs> not just wrong, but wrong and in a dangerous way. So can we start with uh, illusion of attention, how would you describe it? And how would you warn the listener to understand its impact? So the illusion of attention, the way Dan Simons and I defined it in our book is the mistaken belief that we pay attention to and notice more of what's going on in the world around us than we really do. So the idea that perception is processing more stuff in the environment than it really is the idea that you would notice important stuff if it were out there is in many ways a mistaken belief because when your attention is devoted to one thing, as it often is, we're, we're sort of rarely in an attention-free state, right? That's, as I understand it, at least some of the goals of meditation and so on are sort of to reach a maybe states where there's not so much selective attention going on, but usually we are paying attention to something or at least more attention to some things and less attention to others. And the illusion of attention is sort of the belief that yeah. Nonetheless, we're going to notice anything important that happens. We're going to be able to attend to all the critical things, even if we're not. 
And this this is the, the danger here, right, is that if we think we're going to notice anything important and we're wrong about that, then important things can go unnoticed. And that can be sort of catastrophic in situations like driving or even walking or any time when you're in an environment where things can happen to you that that happen so quickly that if you don't notice them uh, coming, you know, you're in big trouble. You have given such amazing examples in the book, and this particularly becomes a issue of contention when there's uh, something like law and order is involved, you know, like the police officer that you mentioned the um, that did not notice uh, when, uh, you know, the actual police officer was perceived to be uh, a, a perpetrator and was uh, attacked. And so how, as you mentioned, that we carry this, harbor this belief, I, I mean, how do we get through life? I mean, I'm so concerned that if there's so many things, we don't notice things that we don't, we are not looking for. And we kind of uh, just look at the big picture and say, okay, I know where this is. This looks like a mall. I'm only looking for uh, blue jeans. So let me head towards the Gap store. And I'm ignoring the rest of the things that are in my vicinity because I know that I'm not going to be quizzed or there's no test or there's no recall attached to my perceptive or you know my perception. So can you give our listeners some more examples as to why this becomes a costly affair, as you mentioned? Sure. And I guess the first thing to say is it's, it's not as though we don't notice anything, but what we're paying attention to. So the brain has some mechanisms for making sure that we notice some things, or at least making it much more likely we notice something. So in our visual field, when something gets larger and larger, that's usually a sign that it's getting closer to us. If it's, you know, if an object starts taking up more and more of our visual field, it's probably something coming towards us. And we can sort of measure how fast that's happening, right? So this is how we can sort of duck out of the way of things, even maybe if we weren't paying attention to them at first, and how we can notice, let's say, you know, people running towards us and so on. So it's not, you know, it's not a total disaster. You know, we, ha- we do have a lot of mechanisms for noticing things that the problem is that we sort of overestimate our likelihood of, of, of doing this. And also, as you kind of alluded to, we, we overestimate our memories as well. So we think we're going to remember more details more accurately and for longer and be able to access them uh, at any time in the future. All of that we tend to think, you know, is going to work better than memory really does. So when you go to the mall, and you walk through, you know, you are momentarily perceiving all kinds of things, all kinds of people, stores, signs, and so on that you're never going to remember later on. I mean, you might remember some bits and pieces of it, but you won't remember nearly as much detail as you perceive. And that's okay, right? There are probably really good reasons for that. The brain is an organ of limited size and powers and doesn't want to waste uh, effort and resources storing up all kinds of irrelevant information. So that's fine. Where you get in trouble sometimes is one of my favorite stories is when people pay attention to their GPS recommendations, you know, Google Maps, GPS, whatever it used to be GPS. Now it's now it's Google Maps and Waze. And they wind up, you know, driving down absurd roads like the, my favorite one is when trucks would be directed to go down certain roads. And eventually Google Maps doesn't know how big your vehicle is. At least they don't think it does. So it would tell you to go down, it would tell a truck driver to go down a road where the, the road was not wide enough. And, and uh, if it's sort of like an old, you know, road in, in, in Europe, you know, it might be so narrow that the truck gets stuck between the two buildings, literally wedged, wedged between two walls. And, you know, there you, you, you think, uh, you know, if only they had been paying attention to what the road actually looked like in front of them. Or a recent story about how like 100 drivers were told to take a detour from an airport and they wound up. I remember that. <laughs> road into, you know, into a farm and they were surrounded by cows or something like that, you know, and 100, you know, 100 different drivers or something like that. So 
know, these are kind of extreme examples, but there you can find plenty of fun videos of people looking at their cell phones and falling into holes, you know, in the in the <laughs> sidewalk or um, falling into fountains in the mall, getting back to the mall again. But then, you know, you get to really, you know, really bad situations where, you know, you're talking on the phone or you're texting or whatever while you're driving and literally crash right into something, killing yourself or killing someone else. Many very sad examples of that. And then they all relate to the mistaken belief. I mean, they're all individual tragedies, but they all relate to the mistaken belief that if anything important happens out there, it'll grab your attention. You, yes. you know, and that's that's the fundamental flaw. You notice a lot of stuff but not everything. And when you're paying attention to one thing, it subtracts a surprising amount of ability to notice other things. In your research, you haven't talked a lot about problematic attention for those who suffer from something like ADHD or people who have concussions and brain injuries or neurological disorders. Can we generalize these kinds of illusion of attention impacting uh, that population even more? Or it doesn't really matter. It's blind to it. Well, I think this illusion is a general phenomenon. I mean, there there are really two separate components to this illusion. One of them is the is is our ability to miss things when we're paying attention to something else. That's that's a limitation on attention called inattentional blindness. So when we're paying attention to one thing, we can be completely essentially blind or miss other salient things. And then there's the illusion of attention, which is we don't realize that inattentional blindness exists. And I think inattentional blindness is a phenomenon that can affect anyone. I think you know, ADHD, traumatic brain injury, whatever. This is just a structural fact about the way attention works. Attention is like a zero-sum game. The more attention you pay to one task or stimulus or, or yes. <laughs> part of your visual field, the less you have left over for anything else. If your attentional capacity is reduced for some other reason, like a brain injury or something like that, I mean, maybe that could be even more severe, although I don't think there's been really very much good research done on um, brain injuries or conditions like ADHD and inattentional blindness. The illusion of attention is sort of the metacognitive belief. It's a belief about how our how our minds work. And, and, and perhaps people with ADHD or with brain injuries may come to some realization about their limitations or patterns in how they pay attention and be able to adjust just like any, anybody else can, I think. I mean, we're not doomed to sort of constantly be talking on our phones while we're driving. We can learn to control that behavior. We can put the phone in the back seat or, 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 or something like that. You know, we're not sort of doomed to keep on making these mistakes. Yeah, and that's actually a lot of research in the re- rehab uh, uh, arena or even uh, educational arena talks specifically about this part that we can actually learn to control the way we pay, pay attention. And that stems from if you inform the person you are not paying attention and you don't know it, that can be a good start <laughs> to begin with. So I'm not going to hit all the illusions uh, that you mentioned in the book, but I thought for our purposes with the context of executive function, we'll talk about two more illusions. One is the illusion of confidence. Can you explain to us what that is and how that interferes with our ability to successfully manage our life? Yeah, that's a really good one. I, this is one of my favorites, actually, in an area that sort of we, we continue to do more research on. There's two components to this. One is having too much confidence in our own skills and abilities. So that's sort of what is often called overconfidence. So anytime that we express the, you know, too much certainty in the quality of our memories, or we estimate our skill at something to be greater than it actually is, we think we're one of the top 10% in the world at something when in fact we're only average or something like that. You know, that's, that's, the, that's that first kind of, of overconfidence that we, we put under the illusion of confidence, the mistaken <laughs> belief that our skills and abilities are, are, are better than they actually are. Then there's the other part, which is that 
we tend to interpret someone else's confidence as a more honest signal of that person's abilities and skills and so on than it actually is. So if an eyewitness says, I'm 100% certain that that's the person, you know, who attacked me, or that's the person that I saw, you know, running out of the store with a gun or something like that, we tend to believe them more than we should. So, and there've been a lot of research on this, basically, it's sort of looking at the correlation between the confidence that a, a witness expresses and the likelihood that they're actually correct in controlled conditions. And lots of research looking at uh, whether people, when they estimate their own abilities, are estimating accurately or tend to overestimate. Now, not everybody overestimates, of course. There are some circumstances where people might might underestimate or might be more realistic, but sort of the overall tendency is to is to overestimate ourselves and to take other people too seriously when they estimate when they estimate themselves. And what are the shortcomings in the way we collaborate or kind of uh, navigate the world? Like, for example, from the educational point of view, is the student watching somebody else? Or if you, I mean, I'm imagining somebody being in a study group and some uh, you have a person who, you know, has great communication skills, speaking confidently, but has doesn't have the best knowledge or hasn't studied. But you can take the, their, you know, description of the topic at face value and trust it to be the truth and kind of go and write a paper or go and answer the question on a test and really get in yourself in a jam? Does that sound like that will happen to illusion of confidence? Sure. That, that's, I think, a pretty common problem where, you know, if we don't have everybody's resume and we don't know exactly, you know, who the biggest expert on a particular topic is, but we're working with a bunch of other people, generally we'll pay more attention and be more deferential to the people who, who act more confident. And the problem there, of course, is that Confidence comes somewhat from your own skills, right? Like uh, if you've never heard of differential calculus in your life, you're probably not going to cling to be an expert on it. But among the people who, who have heard of differential calculus, the people who claim to be the best at it may not necessarily be the best, yet they will get you know, the most attention paid to them and, and the most trust put in their judgment. So there's a lot, bunch of experiments like this that, that we haven't done, but, but other clever researchers have where they... They have people form groups and work together and solving math problems. And, and often it's not the person who's the best at math who has the most influence on the group. It's the person who speaks first or who takes more of a leadership role and so on. And, and, and those traits could have nothing to do with their ability at the underlying task. Those are other traits. Some people are just more confident across the board. You know, there's sort of just a general a general trait of confidence, right, that it may make yes. sense, you know, generally just act and, and speak more confidently and therefore get, uh, you know, get other people to, to pay more attention to them. That's that second part of the illusion of confidence, paying attention to the, to the confident people. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's not that there's no relationship between confidence and skill. It's just that we think there's a more of one than there really is. And, you know, another thing that I notice is the gender specific demonstration of confidence. You know, if you have a, a room full of, I mean, again, I'm using educational context where it's not limited to that. But boys who are uh, outspoken and they're participating in a class and answering questions often and the girls who are taking time to think or are not that sure if they're right can be bamboozled by <laughs> this kind of uh, inequality into, in terms of the confident person getting more opportunities to participate in leadership positions so they, that boosts their sense of confidence. Yeah, that's an interesting point you made about that. There are some methods of teaching where you basically uh, sort of cold call randomly students, you know, and, and nobody gets to just sit there and say nothing during the class. Everybody is equally susceptible to having to participate at any time, which I think are often regarded as sort of 
aggressive methods or at least unfair to students who are more shy or whatever. But in fact, I think the opposite is probably true. Because if you just constantly let a few people participate, and I'm, I'm, I'm as guilty of this as, any, as anybody else, it's, it's an easy trap to fall into as an instructor. If you just only let the people participate who want to participate, then gradually over time, you have sort of like a smaller and smaller group of people who participate. And probably you're right that in many contexts, those are more likely to be uh, men than women, or let's say, you know, older students than, than, than younger students and so on. There are probably a number of factors that go into that. Probably better, not only more fair, but better for all the students to sort of call on everyone and put everyone on the spot, but also give them the opportunity to to contribute. And there are lots of other techniques in teaching you can you can do to try to get around that. Like you can you can have everybody write down, you know, an idea or a question or something like that and then share what they've written down. So there's a little bit less pressure to actually, you know, think of something and be articulate right on the spot. You know, you can you can essentially read a sentence that you had a couple of minutes to prepare. Or something like that. There are ways to get around that. But it, it all stems like the, the whole issue does stem from this mismatch between the confidence we express and, and the skills or the knowledge we actually have. And the greater that mismatch, the more likely the conversation is to be dominated by people who just think they're great as opposed to the people who actually are great. <laughs> yes. And eventually, again, I think that the impulse control to even double check uh, what you are going to say and what you're saying making makes sense you know, that those kind that activating some of the filter system that will make you also kind of maybe be in check with your sense of uh, self or your knowledge and then actually what you put out. I think it's just a good habit to practice that. So that brings me to the third illusion that I thought might be very relevant for us to talk about is this illusion of potential and its relationship to executive function. So do you mind talking a little bit about what that looks like and what are some of the parts of that illusion and how particularly it pertains to misreading into it. So the illusion of potential is a concept that Dan and I came up with that refers to the mistaken belief. These are all mistaken beliefs, or at least they're mistaken, uh, you know, a lot of the time <laughs> that it's easier to, well, let me put it this way. The mistaken belief that, that there is sort of a, a, a reservoir of untapped potential, mental potential inside all of us that is easy to unlock. And, and enable. So it, it's not an illusion to think that like we are more capable of more things than we're than we know how to do. Right. We can learn new skills. In fact, we can learn remarkable skills. You know, you can go from knowing nothing about how to play the violin to being able to play beautiful music on the violin. But but it's a slow process. It's a hard process. It requires teaching and lessons and practice and, and maybe money and time and, and so on. The illusion of potential is the idea that we can sort of short circuit the fundamental laws of practice with <laughs> tricks like playing video games to make ourselves smarter or to make our brain function better or listening to Mozart's music to raise our IQs or, you know, listening to tapes while we're asleep to practice psychotherapy on ourselves or something like that, right? Like these are all sort of like shortcuts, right? Like while we're asleep, we're not doing anything anyhow. So we might as well listen to some tapes that make <laughs> us better. Or while we're playing video games, we're doing that to have fun anyhow. So wouldn't it be great if that also sharpened our brain processes somehow? And we have this we have this tendency to sort of buy into those myths more so than the data justifies. The, the Mozart effect is, is a great one. That's my favorite one in a way because I sort of, that's what got me interested in, in this whole, uh, that whole topic in a way was this idea that just listening to Mozart's music for 10 minutes made people perform significantly better on an IQ test right afterwards. And there's so many reasons why that's a bad idea from the, the point of view of 
of what IQ means, what intelligence means, how the brain works, what the interaction between different parts of the brain is, and the statistics, the, st- the statistics and the details of the study that was run. It's such a bad idea on, on so many levels, I think. But <laughs> as soon as one study about that came out, all the record companies started selling CDs called. I know. <laughs> You know, the, the, the governor of Georgia started sending home every new mother with a Beethoven record that they could play to their babies. Then some hospitals started actually piping that music in to the neonatal ward and so on. I mean, it, it's the illusion of potential sort of refers to in a way like the, it's, it's, it's the assumption that makes it so easy to seduce us into believing this stuff is going to work. That's the illusion of potential. It's the overestimation of how easy it is to get smart quick, you know, to to, to pump up our brains really easily. I think your book had not come out yet or in the re- I was not uh, that familiar with this particular study, but I remember um, this was a lot of my friends were pregnant and having babies and every bloody baby shower, there was at least two packets, <laughs> uh, packages, you know, gift, uh, gifts that were that uh, the, the uh, baby Mozart. Do you remember that? Those CDs that came out? Yeah, uh, it was the Baby Einstein Company. Oh, they, Baby Einstein uh, Company, yes. Yeah, but they had a Baby Mozart product too. Like I think maybe they even started with Baby Mozart and then they, they added Baby Einstein and Baby Bach and you know various things like that. But yes, that whole company was based on the idea that, that if you just stimulate your unborn child or your newborn child or you know your toddler or whatever with the right combination of music and sounds and shapes and things like that, just watching videos that that would sort of magically pump up their, their, their cognitive powers. And there's really no evidence at all in favor of that. It's a remarkably evidence-free zone when it comes to, you know, the understanding of, you know, parenting practices and, and what matters for children's, you know, intelligence and cognitive powers. So a little bit quick detour. So what is the evolutionary purpose of such kind of operating under some such illusions when we should really become woke, right? <laughs> we should come out of it. <laughs> What well, benefit does it serve? Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I'm not sure all of them necessarily do serve every purpose. So not every way that the mind works is necessarily evolved to be that way. I think there's some logic to the notion that some of the difficulties we run into in modern technological society arise from some kind of mismatch between the conditions under which our brains evolved over millennia and millennia and millennia, even going back to primates and, and the, the whole human lineage, were in some ways significantly different from nowadays. So let's look at illusion of attention. If you don't have so many stimuli competing for your attention, it's not so much of a problem. And if you're not moving around so quickly, like driving at, at 70 miles an hour or something like that, or if there aren't so many people around all the time, you know, it's, there's less danger to uh, not noticing things. Nowadays, we have lots of stimuli distracting us. We have lots of things moving around quickly that we need to notice and so on. Likewise, memory. The beliefs we have about how our, our memories are more um, you know, accurate and objective and complete and permanent than they really are, are sort of um, only revealed to us in a way to the extent that we can actually check our memories with other records. And, and those things, you know, writing and, and video and audio and so on, th- those have only been invented relatively recently. And in, in human history. So there was sort of no ability to even check on our faulty intuitions before there was no <laughs> pressure. In a sense, there was no sort of like evolutionary pressure to know exactly how good your memory was. Now we have technologies that can tell us how bad our memory is. Um, yes. so there's there, there, Now, let me let me say one more thing, though, which is sort of like, it's a good thing, I think, that we have this selective attention, because going back to attention for a second, selective attention 
enables us to process some whatever we're paying attention to enables us to process it, um, you know, more deeply and, and more accurately um, than we could otherwise. And even though we don't notice some other things while we're focused on one thing, I think evolution has probably made the right judgment in a sense that it's better to have the capability of selective attention that that buys us more than it costs us in terms of what we miss, or, or at least it used to in the past. Nowadays, you know, we just have to learn to, you know, be aware of that and, and not put ourselves in situations where our selective attention can, can get us into trouble. Wow. So many, my, my brain is just flooded with so many more questions and I'm trying to stay focused here <laughs> and channel my attention. So I want to come to this idea of the knowledge gap. You know, I'm very interested in how we know about what we actually know and how do we access this information about our knowledge? And I don't mean whether I know the capital of India is uh, Delhi, that kind of knowledge, but how much I actually know and that uh, when I'm tested on it, how well would I recall it or how would I be able to bind all that knowledge into something that is reproducible that I can bank on it? You know, am I making sense? So how, how does this all tie into metacognition? Well, I think a good um, an interesting, interesting answer to that question relates to this field called the science of learning, right? So one, I think, great achievement of modern psychological science is that we're getting more and more specific understanding of how to learn most effectively. And, you know, just things like how much to space out practice sessions on things and how many times and in what patterns to repeat practicing the same things, what kinds of ways of processing information will, you know, lead to better memory for the information and so on. We've really made quite a lot of progress there. And so there's some really nice books about that. But one reason why those books are necessary and why that scientific progress was necessary is that our intuitions about our knowledge and how to improve our knowledge are actually can be pretty weak. So students, for example, will often just read the textbook and sort of assume that they have assimilated it and that they have now they now have the knowledge. The knowledge that was in the book is now inside their heads. And come time for the exam, they'll be able to spit it back out of their heads, you know, onto the page, you know, in the exam. That's a mistaken uh, intuition. It falls partly under under what the kinds of things we call the illusion of knowledge in the um, in, in our book. And I think paying attention to the science of learning and what it's discovered about the optimal ways to study is uh, is is important. How to be aware of the gaps in your own knowledge? That's a little bit of a tricky question, I think, because in some ways you you need to. In some ways, the more you know, the more you know what you don't know, right? <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> You know, if, if you never if, if you never knew there was a continent of Africa, you wouldn't even know that you could possibly know how many countries there are in Africa. And if you didn't know what the countries were in Africa, you wouldn't you know have any way of knowing sort of like what are the political systems in the countries in Africa and, and, and so on. It's it's <laughs> you, you, you could be sort of blissfully ignorant in a sense, right, because you don't know how much there is you don't know. And and you often like just to go back to chess, for an example, re recently the, the world champion was interviewed and and he said something like. You know, and he's the best player to ever play chess, which is the game that's basically been around for 500 years in its present form and even longer in its in its more in its more ancient forms, which you know, which originated in um, you know in Persia and and, and so on. Um, and he said something like, "There, there's so little we there's so little we actually know, and so much we still have to learn about you know about this game." And he's probably knows more about it than anyone else. <laughs> you know, so in in a way, it's it's sort of like you need to you know you, you need to know you know one thing in order to know what the next thing is you don't know. I wish I had a better way of expressing it or I had some more optimistic you know message about it. But I guess when in doubt, assume that there's always more to learn and you don't really know that much. I guess that's 
that's that's one way to think about it. You know, yeah, I, I have had Mark McDaniel talk about these actual study strategies, and also I have had Clem talk about this neuroscience of uh, learning how to learn, and it's fascinating. I think a lot of times, I don't know if you're familiar with this, but K-12 education, educators don't necessarily learn theories on learning. They are experts in physics or experts in biology or experts in teaching math. And they may have masters in those and they come into the field. Not all of them, but I'm saying like it's such an important element of learning how to learn and we may not be teaching that. And then students are going rogue uh, and then all these illusions come in their way because they might think, I think I know how to learn this. And I, I know, I think I'm pretty competent. There was one, one research that I uh, came across. Uh, I don't remember the authors, but they, they, they asked a group of people regarding their memory and they, they rated their memory very high based on their ability to retrieve it on Google. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, that's, that, that's a, <laughs> yeah, that's a really interesting case. I mean, it's not ridiculous to sort of regard Google as in a sense part of your memory because it is very easy to retrieve a whole bunch of information there, you know, and so it's it's not it's not that ridiculous, but um knowing what the boundary is between what is actually contained in your head and what you merely know how to access elsewhere is I think a little bit unintuitive. And I can see where people have have problems with that. I mean the, the science of learning stuff is so important. I think the good news is that it is extremely well summarized for non-experts um, by a lot of nice books. So if, if people just like Google science of learning or, or type science of learning into amazon.com or whatever place you, you get books and, and things like that, you will find a lot of good, a lot of quite good resources. Some of them are for educators, you know, for yeah. teachers, you know, and, and so on, really trying to synthesize that stuff. And I think generally they do a pretty good job because the people who write those books are quite, not only are they good researchers in this area, but they really conscientiously want to help bring this work to, to greater use. So it's, it's, it's not hard to catch up and, and, and sort of learn how to apply that stuff in your own teaching practice. I think it would be hard, a lot harder for me to learn physics, I think, <laughs> than for a physics teacher to learn something about the science of learning. Oh, such a fabulous point. Yeah, such, such an essential step. And actually, the modern era that we live, we have Coursera, we have free YouTube, you know, like scientists are giving lectures like uh, such as yourself, even at a Google talk. So people can access information so readily now. So that's a treat. Uh, we are coming to the end of our discussion here, but you talk in your book, often referred to Woody Allen's joke about this takeaway, and you recommend that we reinvent intuition. So two questions I have. So do we really have an intuition, a gut feeling? Should we trust it? And how do we handle the fact that we, uh, the, the way our mind works, the way our uh, hidden processes work, we just are, do not have conscious control over it. So you have some hopeful suggestions for us. So how would you go about telling us that? I hope I have some hopeful suggestions. I mean, there have been some, you know, some writers who have, I think, oversold the concept of intuition and uh, as sort of a, a guide to decision making in life. You know, so you, you'll hear stories about business leaders who said, you know, they had a gut feeling that this was the right investment and they made the investment, you know, and they, they made, you know, a million dollars, $10 million, you know, a billion dollars or whatever. You never hear anyone talk about how they had a gut feeling that this was the right investment and they put all their savings into it and they lost all their savings and went broke because those people are never being interviewed by the business magazines or by Oprah Winfrey or anything like that. But there are a lot more of those people than the people <laughs> yes. who, you know, guessed right and attribute their luck, you know, attribute the fruits of what is, is in large part luck to some kind of internal force like intuition or, or something like that. Now, that said, 
there is such a thing as expert pattern recognition. So, you know, to refer to chess for maybe the last time, you know, the chess grandmaster, the chess master can look at the pieces on the board and within a second, literally a second, have some reasonable idea of who's winning and maybe what the right move is. Now, they're going to be wrong a lot of the time, but they're going to be right, you know, a whole lot mm. more often than a weaker player or, a, you know, or especially someone who doesn't even know how to play. But so there's a whole lot that the expert can do in a very short period of time based on built up knowledge and pattern recognition and so on. And so one thing I think that we need to do to sort of try to avoid these everyday illusions is build up our repertoire of patterns of situations that cause those illusions to happen or that, that bring them out. You know, so when you're working with other people in a group, try to think about like, who are we paying attention to? Why are we paying attention to those people? Like question some of those patterns and, and whether they might reflect something other than these are the people who really know what they're doing or these are the people who are the experts or, or whatever. Or if you're having an argument with somebody about who remembers something that happened a year ago more accurately, you know, think about like that kind of thing happens over and over. And that's like a pattern you can recognize when an argument becomes over whose memory is more accurate. Probably <laughs> the answer is, you know, both of you are wrong. And you're wasting your time on this argument, or at least you, you could try to sort it out with some documentary evidence, right? So you can sort of develop a pattern recognition for falling into these cognitive illusions. I think that's probably what I've gradually done over all this time. And I, I think, you know, I, I think people think, who think about it can do that too. I have uh, learned from the way you presented this information that adds uh, or kind of adopt some sense of uh, humility that maybe you don't know or maybe you're not right. Maybe you don't re remember. Like you said, I think sometimes going, that this feeling of needing to be confident is so strong and feeling that you need to kind of own your intelligence or somehow dominate your own stratosphere by saying, I'm fabulous, you know? So sometimes get behind, people get behind this with such fervor. And if you come from a point of view that maybe sometimes I get these things wrong, but that's just not me, but that's just a way of being human can kind of help too. Do you agree with that? I agree 100%. Like we could call it, you know, cognitive humility or something like that, right? The, the most, yes. maybe, the, maybe the most fabulous person is the person who, you know, who knows how fabulous they are and, um, <laughs> you know, who, who knows, you know, who has a, a good appreciation of, we, we would call it calibration, basically sort of like how well your belief in your own abilities matches, matches the reality. That's, you know, that's, that's sometimes called calibration. Um, and yeah, I think that's what we should strive for. Like it's confidence is, you know, confidence is good. And in some cases, even overconfidence can be useful. But that doesn't mean that that most of the time we're not better off, uh, you know, being realistic. Well, that brings us to the end. Thank you so much for your fantastic conversation here and sharing and bringing so many perspectives that's really going to uh, help our listeners understand the the we need to take our minds seriously and the fact that we don't probably know everything about our mind. So I really appreciate you being here and I will attach the particularly, we never talked about the gorilla uh, video, so I'll attach that in our show notes, but thank you for being here, Chris. All right. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. All right. That's all the time we have for today. If you know of someone who might benefit from listening to today's conversation, we would be grateful if you would kindly forward it to them. So on behalf of our host, Sucheta Kamath, today's guest, Dr. Christopher Shabriz, and all of us at Cerebral Matters, thanks for listening today. And we look forward to seeing you again right here next week on Full Prefrontal. 
Thank you for listening to Full Prefrontal, exposing the mysteries of executive functions. To contact our host, Sucheta Kamath, and learn more about her work on improving executive functions, visit her website at CerebralMatters.com. That's CerebralMatters.com. Tune in next week for the next informative episode of Full Prefrontal.